When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Ollie Mann, and this is Why, the podcast that asks the big questions about science, tech, life, the universe, and everything in it. Now, I remember my school history curriculum. It was mostly about Nazis, Chartists, and Henry VIII. What we definitely skipped over was the extent to which the entire course of human history has been determined not by grand political plans or ideological endeavours, but by ourselves. Yes, today on Why, we're exploring the extent to which our bodies, that is, our human biology, has shaped world history. For example, did you know that tropical diseases on the other side of the world helped bring about the union between England and Scotland in the early 1700s? The Scottish had seen that their southerly neighbours, that the English, were making huge amounts of money in the early days of the empire or the establishment leading up to the empire on global international trade. And they wanted a piece of that sort of mercantile pie as well. So the Scottish in what was known as the Darien Scheme, tried to establish a colony for themselves in Panama. That's Lewis Dartnell, a research scientist and author and professor of science communication at the University of Westminster. Panama, by this point, was beset by tropical diseases like yellow fever and malaria. So the Darien Scheme ended up collapsing, ended up failing, almost directly because of the tropical diseases around the other side of the world. And so much investment, so much that the Scottish money that was available at the time had been sunk into this prospect, that it ended up in in dire economic straits, which then led, on the next step of this domino chain, into it being forced to accept the terms that the English were offering them for for the Union in in the early 1700s. So again, this fundamental event in history, in, in British history, came about because of something fundamental about our biology and our vulnerability to different diseases, and yellow fever and malaria specifically in that case. And so how exactly did we get the Act of Union as a result of that? The problem was that Scottish economy was then even weaker than it had been before, and a lot of people and a lot of powerful people, you know, so the aristocrats in, in Scotland wanted to get their money back, and the English government was offering to pay off their debts if, you know, if they signed through this act of, of the union. So when you combined history and biology, what was the thing that surprised you about what you found? A mutation in one of the genes in our DNA and our ancient ancestors tens of millions of years ago that knocked out the ability to make vitamin C. And this had very little effect. Our evolution was, was basically didn't care because we were living in forests at the time. We had access to lots of fresh vegetation and and fruit. Mm -hmm. And it was only in much more recent history when we started cramming hundreds of people into ships for weeks and then months at a time when they no longer had access 
to fresh fruit, that they could no longer get that vital organic compound, that vitamin C from their diet, and their body stores ran out, and they started experiencing this horrible affliction, this deficiency disease called scurvy, where, where your body literally starts falling apart. Vitamin C is, is crucial for building collagen, which sticks our body together. And so this was hugely important for hundreds of years of the age of sail with people going off on these vast voyages of discovery or mariners plying the maritime trade routes and moving things around the world, but also the strength and power of navies jousting with each other for control of the ocean. And it was the Royal Navy that first adopted an effective countermeasure, which is familiar to us today, which is citrus fruits like lemons and limes, which can provide that vitamin C in a very concentrated form. The fascinating twist in the tale, which I came across, is that lemons therefore became really valuable. And Lord Nelson effectively established the island of Sicily as a giant lemon factory. Wow. And because lemons are so easy to steal from an orchard and they're so valuable, it was really hard to protect those orchards at this period in history. So the orchard growers, the owners, effectively had to hire their own local muscle to protect the lemons on the trees. And that then led into aspects of extortion and the rise of what we would be familiar with today as the mafia. So the mafia grew in directly out of, <laughs> out of our solution. Anti-scurvy medicine. Anti-scurvy medicine, which was making up for a mutation in one of our genes tens of millions of years ago. There's this long chain of cause and effect from something fundamental about our evolution, something fundamental about us mm. and our makeup, and then these consequences, this sort of domino effect consequences through history. That's so fascinating as well, because they're two distinct kind of powerful entities, aren't they? The British Empire and the Italian Mafia. <laughs> yes. um, you wouldn't expect them to overlap historically. To have had all. any connection, no. Yeah. I mean, also, having the sort of scurvy lemon farm in Italy, did that mean that boats had to go via Italy to pick up lemons en route to places? They were distributed. So the lemons would have been traded from Sicily back up to you know the Admiralty and, and, and Greenwich or wherever they were provisioning their ships from, put into the holds of ships, then sent around the world. So, so only the Brits had them? The Brits adopted them first. And then when people realised what an advantage it gives you and, and your fleets and, and your sailors, it was then more widely adopted around the world. And then with the invention of steamships and much quicker passage times, it became less significant. OK, so that's using almost a sort of deficiency in our biology for good, I mean, from the British point of view, becoming more powerful as a result of understanding. Exactly. Gaining an advantage on the world stage. As a result of a to, weakness. By plugging a weakness, by finding yeah. the, the countermeasure to, to a weakness, yeah. Right. I mean, this thing of kind of combating a vulnerability and then exploiting it, I, I was thinking whilst you were talking about that, about globalisation, I guess, hmm. and where we are now, because... I happen to be interviewing you face to face in London today. <laughs> but you know, if you were in Los Angeles, you could be on the show just the same. And that would be the case if it was three in the morning for me. That's something that technology has overcome that's based on fundamental sort of scientific facts, isn't it? The United States is a long way away from Britain, people need to sleep at night. And yet now those things have almost been mitigated through science. Oh, absolutely. I mean, throughout human history, we've been inventing tools and technologies to make up for our deficiencies in our biology or to enhance what our biology was, was already capable of. And that obviously goes right back to the earlier stone tools where we don't have sharp talons or, or teeth to hunt effectively and eat lots of meat. We had to effectively create artificial talons, you know, spears and, and arrowheads. 
and more recent history, we've invented ways of correcting our eyesight, for example. So I wear glasses. I, I've got a very specially moulded piece of glass that can manipulate light itself, can focus that light because my eyes don't do it effectively enough. And with modern technology, with things like communication and the internet, you know, you're right, we communicate around the entire planet instantaneously, which would have been such an alien concept to someone, you know, 100 years ago in, in the early days of, of the telegraph. Can you imagine describing something like the internet to, to someone back in the Victorian age? In terms of societies coming together, people who aren't related, running governments, countries, nations, politics, all that stuff, can you trace scientific roots back to that as well? It doesn't feel like biologically an impulse that, you know, is instinctive to do that. The deepest roots of civilization and human societies do go all the way back to our biology. We, we had to evolve to be less aggressive to each other compared to something like chimpanzees, where particularly the males are always running around and you know, biting and fighting each other and, and establishing dominance hierarchies. We have incredibly low levels of which Rangham has described as being reactive aggression to each other. And we needed that to happen in our evolution so that we could start living together in larger and larger communities and then societies, and ultimately in entire cities with the emergence of civilization. So there are deep evolutionary roots that laid the groundwork for our establishment and development of civilization. Absolutely, yeah. And what about royal families? Is there some biological foundation in that? There is. There's quite a long chain of cause and effect here, which is, which is interesting nonetheless. And one of the other fundamental things that was happening in our evolution since we diverged from chimpanzees was that we were simultaneously becoming bipedal, able to walk around upright on two legs, but also becoming brainier and brainier, more and more intelligent. And that gave us the capabilities for language and tool use and, and working together in teams and inventing things. But the problem with those two evolutionary adaptations happening at the same time is that they are mutually exclusive. Because the hole in the centre of the pelvis, the birth canal, that our brain, our skull has to be pushed through during birth, is being constricted in two different directions by being both bipedal and trying to have big skulls fitting through it. And so the solution that was hit upon within human evolution was to give birth to effectively very immature and vulnerable baby and then have several years of development outside the womb. And the problem with that is that you've now got a really demanding child compared to something like a gazelle, which can stand up and, you know, prounce along its, its mother within minutes of being born. And just a mother alone was no longer capable, no longer able to raise human babies. And it needed what's known as biparental investment, investment from both the mother and the father, which is actually pretty rare in the animal kingdom. Mm. But in order to keep the, the mother and father together during those years of, of development, you needed some kind of biological contract, a, a sort of bond, a tie between those two individuals. And that came about, that evolved as an oxytocin, a hormonal mediated bond known as the pair bond. And we experienced that pair bond as humans as, as the emotion of love. We, we evolved that emotion of love to bind the mother and father together to help raise children. That's why you have monogamy when you have children, essentially. That's why it's advantageous to have a strong bond between mother and father, but you could also have polygamous relationships. If you've got a father or male individual who has a lot of wealth, a lot of resources, and can support several mothers and children at the same time, then you, can, you, you have polygamous societies. And, and they've been very, very common throughout human history. But with the development of civilization, we 
came to inherit not just physical traits from our parents, so you know the color of our eyes, but also resources. So things like the grain that you've harvested or livestock you might have or claims over territory and land that you're farming. And those then came to be passed down the generations and the power that comes with those resources. So what I'm basically now describing is the origin of monarchy, the origin of sovereign power that is kept within a single family and passed down the generations in the same way that genes are passed down the generations. I see. And the idea of dynasties and histories and you're trying to hold on to that power is basically just an extension of kin selection, which we see a lot in the animal world of animals helping out and being altruistic to their close relatives. Our expression of that within human history is is effectively monarchy and, and dynasties. That's so interesting because, you know, up until the point that we got to the bit where you got to the monarchy, you're talking about everyone's family, aren't you? You're talking about societies where all of us have been born because a man and a woman created us. Yeah. And yet the monarchy, or those kind of structures anyway, where you have a, a job that is passed down, I suppose it's the same in modern corporate culture, isn't it? It is. So I've, I've been enjoying the end of Succession, the TV series, which is effectively a corporate monarchy, a corporate dynasty, yeah. and this wonderful power struggle between the children trying to inherit, trying to succeed to that power. But throughout the Middle Ages, not just uh, sovereign powers inherited, but effectively the craft of your father. So a blacksmith's son would end up being a blacksmith. He had had all the training through his childhood. He had access to the tools. He can inherit the forge from his father. So in many ways, throughout history, a lot of roles in society have been loosely inherited in that sense. This feels like big canvas stuff, but then, you know, your approach does. I just wonder whether, like, sometimes the reason it's been hard to displace those important families or those big corporate institutions by people who have legitimate grievances is because there's something innate in us that feels, oh, that's right. That's how it's always been. That's what tradition is. Or maybe that's just what the powerful people have got you to believe, right? Yeah, yeah. I think the point is once you've attained a position of power, no matter how you do that, maybe you killed the last king on the battlefield and you've seized the throne, seized the crown, you've then got the power and resources to cling on to it for as, as long as you can. Today, we're asking how our biology has shaped the course of world history. Professor Dartnell says our evolution to walking on two legs is linked directly to the creation of monarchies. And if you want to rule the waves, you gotta get some lemons. Still, this touches on some pretty problematic history. I'm thinking of things like eugenics and genocide that were done in the name of biology and colonialism. You want to avoid biological determinism. And I would never argue that all of history comes down to our biology, or indeed any particular event in history was 100% dictated by our biology. But also you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It would be foolish to try to pretend there is no influence from our genetics, our anatomy, or our psychology and cognitive biases on the grand themes and trends of history and therefore the making of the modern world that we live in today. It's finding the correct balance between the two. Talk to me about cognitive biases and and how they've played a role. Yes, we've all got these weird sort of glitches in our mental software and in our psychology. And if you read a book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, you'll be familiar with some of these cognitive biases. Some of the stories I came across included the confirmation bias, which I argued Columbus fell for hook, line and sinker. And despite having made four separate voyages 
towards the West, he never accepted himself that he hadn't in fact reached the Orient, that he'd reached a strange new land. And he simply discounted and ignored all of the mounting and mounting evidence that he wasn't where he thought he was in terms of the plants that he found, the fact he couldn't find any of the spices he was looking for, those interpreters didn't speak any of the languages that the locals were speaking. There was so much evidence that he wasn't where he thought he was and he just simply ignored it. And we're all susceptible to that sort of confirmation bias. It played a huge role in the 2003 invasion of Iraq and the dodgy dossier about weapons of mass destruction. It was demonstrably due to confirmation bias and the way that the evidence was collected and put together and, and simply ignoring contrary evidence. And a lot of these contrary biases have had a huge influence through our history, but also going to determine how we come to face our future, particularly with very large-scale, very slow-changing problems such as things like climate change, where I think we all know the sort of changes we need to make to our lives to help protect the environment in terms of not flying everywhere to go on summer holiday, trying to reduce the amount of meat that we eat. But what we're therefore being asked to do is surrender and give up short-term benefits, short-term gains for a slightly more indeterminate, longer-term advantage in the future. And that comes right up a butt against some of these cognitive biases that have been tuned by evolution to be living in the short term in you know, the African savannah. To what extent has your biology made you come here today? <laughs> well, I'd like to think we still have a lot of free will. So being human is different aspects of our animalness, of our humanness, from genetics to our anatomy to our psychology, and how those have had an effect through history, as you're mentioning. But I don't think we want to go as far as biological determinism. You know, We still make our own decisions. We still have free will. And so when I received the invite to come to this interview, I jumped at the chance. OK, I wasn't suggesting there wasn't free will involved. <laughs> but your choice to be a biologist and an author, is that traceable in your biology? I mean, what is the biological impulse to be a scientist? So actually, my field of research is in astrobiology and the search for life on other planets. And it's something I've been interested in since, you know, I was a sort of teenage nerd watching lots of Star Trek and things. But I think deeper than that, humans are an intrinsically curious and inquisitive and explorative species. And science is just a more modern expression of, of those you know, deep-held desires to understand the natural world around us, ultimately to survive in that environment and not be killed by it. I suppose it's interesting sort of conflating history and science together, isn't it? Because usually when we're talking about scientific discovery, we're either focused on solving a problem of the present mm. or looking forward to how things will be in the future. Not that many people sort of investigate the past through science. There's a lot of scientific research into our evolution, of course. So what drove human evolution from the most recent common ancestor with chimpanzees, let's say seven million years ago. But there's not much research, or at least not much is, is spoken about in how that biological aspect continues to have importance in history. We talk a lot about social factors or economic factors or cultural factors. And of course, those are all important. But I was interested in drilling down below those and see what some of the underlying causes about our, our genetics and our psychology have had a defining influence as well. Some of this stuff can feel quite deep in the weeds. But as we look around us at just kind of general societal structures, the way the world works and operates, what about it is kind of secretly informed by our scientific makeup? 
Oh yeah, so even in very simple terms, even just the sort of measurements that we've chosen to measure things around the world. So the second is very roughly equivalent to the human heartbeat. An inch is the thickness of your thumb. These are quite familiar examples. But perhaps even more fundamental than that is the decimal system we use for counting. So one, ten, a hundred, a thousand. When you think about it, that obviously comes back down to the number of digits we've got sprouting out of our forelimbs. We've got 10 fingers and thumbs. That is just a random quirk of our evolution, of, of mm. animal biology, vertebrate biology. It could have been a completely different number. We could have walked around giving each other high threes and counting, <laughs> counting in base six or on the base 10. Yeah, I'd never so thought our, about that. So our, our numerical system is fundamentally built on so the number of So we can divide digits. it with our fingers. So that we can count easily in base 10, because you've got 10 things to count with. And that then informs the development of numerical systems and mathematics that grows out of it. Okay, so to tap into your nerdy Star Trek roots then, <laughs> in terms of the next frontier, space, our society up there will be informed by our physical limitations too, I suppose. But I, I've never really thought about how. I suppose breathing is the obvious one, isn't it? But what else? Yeah, so I've been looking at a bunch of interesting examples about how the human body might limit or constrain as we explore through space and start colonizing other planets such as Mars. And you might already be familiar with the fact that when an astronaut has spent six months, a year in outer space, they're absolutely knackered by that weightlessness when they come back to Earth. They simply cannot stand their muscles, particularly the ones in their legs and their back, which are used for supporting us against gravity, have got really weak. The heart has got really weak because it doesn't have to pump blood up against gravity. The skeleton has weakened because it's not having to support a load anymore. And this could be problematic. In fact, this will be problematic unless we solve it for sending the first human explorers to Mars because we're talking at something between six or nine months of flight from Earth to get to Mars. And we need to be able to have our astronauts standing up and being capable when mm. they arrive. So we're looking at countermeasures and ways of limiting the way that the body effectively deteriorates in the space environment. But putting on this sort of biologist's hat, your body is doing something really clever. It is just simply adapting to your environment. You don't need such a strong skeleton, such strong muscles or heart if you're floating around in weightlessness. So your body goes, oh my beer guys, I've got this. I'm going to sort you out for this new environment. And it's just unfortunate that nine months later when you arrive at Mars, you've had this adaptation process to the weightlessness that you're then mm. absolutely knackered walking around in gravity again. So the solution is going to be how to effectively prevent or block a body from doing what it thinks is a really clever thing at the moment. Is that ultimately quite an optimistic thing to think about then when you look back through history? Because most people with a just general view of what's happened in the past will be thinking about wars and discriminatory dynasties hmm. and disease. But actually, kind of, a way of looking at it through biology is this is an incredible story of progress. We as a species remain completely dominant and look how we've evolved. Yeah, I think so. And I think that the stories I've been trying to tell are about how a lot of what we take for granted in the world around us today has got its roots in biology, but also there's some credible examples of how we've you know, superseded our biological constraints, used its foundation, but gone beyond them, and literally gone beyond the Earth as we're now exploring as a species other planets and moons in the solar system.
It's been so cool to hear how much our biology has shaped world history. And this looks likely to continue to shape events off planet as well, because let's face it, our soft and complex bodies haven't quite evolved yet to survive long term in space. But I guess that's another episode for another day. Uh, that's it for us today on Why. Thank you, Lewis Dartnell. Thank you. Lewis's latest book, Being Human, is available now. We'll be back with more scientific anomalies, conundrums and weird facts soon. Don't forget to follow the podcast so you never miss an edition and follow us on social media as well. Links are in the show notes. I've been Ollie Mann asking why. See you next time. Why was written and presented by Ollie Mann. The lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff. And the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. And the group editor is Andrew Harrison. Artwork is by James Parrott. Theme music is by DJ Food. Why is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.